Before we start today's episode of the On The Way podcast, we've just got a little bit of exciting news to share with you about an event that will be coming up in December at St. John's Anglican Cathedral in Brisbane. Uh, Sue, Peter and I are going to sit down together to record a Christmas special of the show titled Opening the Gift of Original Goodness. It is one of the great theological questions. Are humans inherently good or inherently bad? Sue, Peter and I are going to discuss a view of incarnation that is joyful, uh, hopeful and uh, fits the season of Christmas uh, in a more appropriate way way we'd love to have you come and join us it will be the 9th of december starting at seven o'clock for a 7 30 uh, recording it is free to come along and join us in the darnell room at st john's anglican cathedral in brisbane uh, if you want more information about this event go to the on the way facebook page uh, we have posted the event there so you can go along and check out the information and rsvp we would love to celebrate the festive season with you with this special live podcast if you can make it along and uh, we'll see you there Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and we are coming to you today from the Byron Riders Festival, uh, which has been a bit of a staple of the podcast in recent years, up until obviously COVID put a hitch in those plans. But I'm here today, instead of Sue Grimmett doing the drive down to Byron with me from Brisbane, I have Peter Catt here. Peter, thank you for making the drive down. It's great that uh, the festival's not on the, at the same time as the Dean's Conference this year. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's worked out quite well. It's wonderful. Well, uh, look, uh, obviously the Byron Riders Festival is a highlight every single year, and uh, keep an eye out for that next August for those in Australia. It's well worth getting here. And we are very excited to be joined where we are here today at the Byron Writers Festival by a man whose work will be known by many. Uh, Damon Gamow is an actor, director and activist, most well known for his two documentaries, 2040 and uh, more recently the, uh, the shorter film Regenerating Australia, looking at how much Australia could change in the next eight years alone on the, the climate uh, front. Damon, thank you so much for making time to join us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, there's so much to, to talk about here in this conversation. I think something that resonates so much with people in your work is the the hope that you bring when it comes to to climate the fact that you aren't uh, sort of reading this as a just an assumption that it's all going to be doom and gloom and you know as we often joke about on the podcast maybe get yourself a nice room on the titanic the ship's going down mm. but the best you can hope for is to get yourself a nice room mm. you kind of uh, paint a very different picture and your most recent film regenerating australia does that in the form of a sort of an imagined news report from new year's eve 2029 looking back at the decade all the change that has occurred. Can you just uh, take us a little bit into, I guess, where this the genesis of this idea for, for this film mm. was? Well, I think it really was a response to 2040 that we saw that using that different technique, and I want to preface this by saying where, you know, uh, Pierre Winberg calls it hopium. We're not selling hopium. Like, even when we're positing these futures, they're very much based on practical real solutions that already exist they just require the scaling and the policy to make it happen so it's not mm. sort of some kind of utopian fantasy that we're trying to peddle here it's very much things that are in play right now they just need to be amplified and with 2040 because we built this impact campaign off the back of the film which allowed people once they felt or felt this emotion after watching the film to turn that in emotion into some kind of tangible action we just had a really wonderful response to all the various things we offered, whether that was funding a seaweed platform or helping farmers to switch to regenerative practices, whatever it might be, that the response was so affirming that this was an approach that did was very responsive for some people. We wanted to try that with a more localised version because obviously 2040 had more global themes, but Regenerating Australia is very much based on what Australia could look like in 2030 in a very meaningful way. Um, and to see 
you know, that already starting to come to life is really encouraging because we, you know, certainly not my vision of the future. It was based on a really deep listening campaign with a really diverse group of Australians. And we just asked them what kind of country they want to live in in 10 years. What changes would you make? Mm. And then we put that into that narrative and again provided action pathways for people after they've seen the film to bring to life one of those solutions in their community. We had quite a large fund off the back of the film. And just to see the calibre of ideas that have been submitted, I think really speaks to people's um, fatigue around apocalypse that we get. We all know what's happening. We keep getting bombarded with it. Our algorithms keep telling us that it's very easy to shut people down and cause paralysis by that because they just don't know what to do. There's no there's no action points for them to get involved with. It all feels too existential. So it's easier just to watch more Netflix and drink more wine. But if you can actually provide real on-ramps for them to get involved mm. and also show them the transformation that that could lead to in their own communities or their own families, then I think we've got a much better chance psychologically of getting them on board. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, and I'm, I'm interested in your own journey on this front because obviously people would be very familiar with your, your acting career and, um, and sort of the, I guess, the first stage of almost your, your career in film and TV. When was the moment for you when you decided uh, this climate's the thing now? Climate filmmaking is, is what I'm here to do and I'm going all in on it. Uh, I was very lucky, I think, even as an actor, that I was spoiled. The first job I ever did was with Rolf Deheer, and it was a film called The Tracker, which was with David Goldblum, um, bless his soul. And, and we, you know, got to go out and, and just I got to experience what a film can be and the potency of story and how it can wake people up to certain subject matters. And then had a similar experience with Balibo, with, with Rob Connolly, about these five journalists that were, were killed in East Timor. And really got to see how potent story is and how underutilised it is in terms of social change. You think about all the Hollywood films and the values that they're perpetuating. I think people are blindly consuming that, not understanding that they're really shaping their values and shaping culture. Mm. So I guess just had a real taste of that with Sugar in using story to wake people up and provide these action campaigns. And we just had a great experience of that where we ended up doing a, a parliamentary screening with Jamie Oliver in the UK, which led to a sugary drinks tax. And then even New Zealand, where they ban their sugary drinks. And I thought, God, there's really something in this. This is really powerful if you marry the campaign with the film. And so I was reading an article um, about a bleaching event uh, on the Great Barrier Reef in 2016 and probably read two paragraphs of it, not even that, and turned the page and started reading another article and just caught myself and thought, what was it about that that I could not connect with or engage with as a father in this huge environmental event? I just couldn't find a way in. And so we thought maybe I started exploring the psychology of that and really found that there was an opportunity to, to not tell that apocalyptic story, but maybe show people what it might look like on the other side of the crisis. Mm. What are the things we can fight for instead of fighting against? There's a long list of what we can fight against. We all know that. We can name them. But we're not showing people what we could strive for and the better world we could create, not just for our children, but for all living things. Mm. Like that's what's up for grabs right now. Climate change is, is, is an immune response from our planet. It's feedback that the way we're going is not serving us. Yeah. And we get that yeah. feedback from our own immune system and we go to the doctor and we change our ways and we go off on a different direction. So I think let's see this as an opportunity, huge one, to fundamentally change our system, which deep down a lot of us want anyway. Um, here's the moment. So let's seize it and talk about what it might look like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've heard you speak a couple of times before about uh, Renee Lertzman's work on the psychology of climate action. Um, what are some of the, the insights of that that you like to share with people, I suppose, mm. who are trying to do work in this space? Yeah, I guess it's just the way that the brain responds to constant overwhelming information or, or fear that it does activate the limbic system. And when the limbic system's activated, 
the, the part of our brain that problem solves and thinks creatively, the prefrontal cortex, just gets disengaged. Those two things can't be operating at the same time. So again, it's that idea of paralysis. No, not everyone. We, that's not to shy away from the urgency of what's happening, but we've got to also show people the way out. You know, we can't just freak people out and say, hey, it's all doom and gloom, because if you're not saying, yeah, but we can leave through this exit, or here's another way to get out of this room that's burning. And we haven't been doing that as much as we should have been. And, and we have to a degree, but certainly not in the mainstream. And I think a lot of, um, you know, this is where the role of storytellers or um, you know, anyone, or even in, in what you both do, like the ability to, to tell stories and help people, we've, we've just left this to the scientists or the politicians. So it's got stuck in a scientific political rhetoric, which no one can engage with. What do you do with 1.5 degrees or anthropogenic or net zero? Like, that doesn't move you. It's, it's, a, it's a factoid that you, you, you feel stuck with. Whereas if we can tell these stories about community benefits and all the healthier foods and the community values, somewhere that stirs people and you've got a better chance of bringing them along for the journey. Mm. Yeah, well said. Um, narrative is, is uh, I've mentioned before on the podcast, there's a guy in the States, an anthropologist, who says we should have been called Homo Narans because that's, it's, it's narrative that makes us human and, and we really need to tap into uh, the power of narrative in that you know, I've got people in the cathedral congregation who have lost hope because of all of the apocalyptic um, speak. They've gone from being climate deniers to, oh well, it's over, and, and, and they're paralysed. And so one of the um, jobs we face is actually to rekindle the gift of hope. Even if you don't feel too optimistic, as long as you can be hopeful, then you can actually enter in and you can become a change agent if you can, can grasp hope. So right. I think it's a really good model for um, change in all sorts of ways. And I think, yeah, the reality there is, is you're right. We know that we're facing enormous challenges ahead. There's no doubt about that. But the door hasn't shut yet. Right. And while there is a tiny gap in that door, like how dare we not respond? I mean, mm. I think about obviously the way we communicate with our kids. Is it not enough that we're stealing their future through our resource consumption and climate? We're also stealing their present, their present. by mm. telling them all these apocalyptic stories. Like, how dare we? M mm. Morally, like, let's get on with it. Yeah, and indeed. actually, mm. even without a guaranteed outcome, let's move forward and try and make a difference. Mm. That's what we've got to show the kids. Yeah. Not keep saying, oh, it's too late, you shouldn't be having kids. Like, that is just, I think, morally bereft. It's nihilism. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. it's a complete, a very dangerous um, mm. state of mind that, in fact, that the fossil fuel industry themselves in the last 10 years have been perpetuating because mm. they understand the paralysis that it can cause. Mm. So that's a very in easy narrative to start pushing out. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah that's, that's fascinating. Well, what's something that is beautiful about the film, um, having watched it a bit recently, and obviously there's a bunch of online platforms people can go to, to find this film. I saw it. Uh, on Amazon last night um, for the second time but I was I was thinking while I was watching it because you obviously you mentioned this journey began in 2020 with conversations and the film um, started being shown earlier this year in 2022 and it struck me as some of the stuff you were looking at in the film um, that we then saw it sort of come to fruition in the Australian federal election I mean you spoke a little bit about giving voice and power back to people and moving maybe a little bit away from a, a stuck um, bipartisan not partisan sorry very partisan situation we were in and here we are, you know, Peter and I coming from Brisbane, um, the, the capital of Greensland, as it was, has now come to be called, and the independents getting more of a voice. Did you watch that election unfold and think, oh, this is, uh, this is kind of exactly part of what we were talking about? Yeah, it was um, mixed emotions that night because there was a, there was a jubilance and, a, and an excitement with what was happening, but also of, of a sense of, of course, because we had interviewed these people two years before. 
and really diverse groups like coal workers as well and tradies that were saying very similar things. Their language was slightly different. So you get teenagers talking about climate action, but even farmers were talking about, I, I want an Australian landscape of 40 years ago with cleaner rivers again and, and greener hills. That's what I grew up with. So in a sense, they were asking for ecological change and action, you know, so, so they actually were united. So it wasn't a surprise. And I think what's so lovely is that it, just the hope it's brought that, that these people just chose to put up their hands. It was very much a grassroots movement. As we all know, for a long time, you can feel like grassroots is just not doing much. It's just stuck in the grassroots. What, what influence can we actually have on policy? Well, suddenly, that person is in, in the halls of power and starting to shift and shape our policies and did on the recent climate bill and will on the, um, on the integrity bill that will probably go for, forward in September. So that's so exciting. I think we'll look back at, at this year as a really historic moment for, for our country. And, and what it does is that it says even to the Labor Party now, even though they're starting to expand and they want to build more, more oil and ga more gas and, and, and whatnot and fossil fuel projects, that don't think you're safe because this independence movement is not stopped now. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to adhere to these community values, we're going to come for your seats as well. Yeah, right. So don't think that this was just a liberal targeting. So that is, to me, an exciting democracy. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a little bit trickier and it's difficult. And you've got to find these ways to agree. But so it should be because we live in a complex system. It can't be that simple. And I think people want that now. They, they understand that you know, they're sick of people making decisions about their community that don't live in their community and don't understand the nuance and the complexity of what happens there in their place, whereas now they get someone to represent them that understands that and they can speak to directly. And that's regenerative democracy. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, it, it makes me think actually about something we do talk about often on the podcast, Peter, which is the problem of binaries and, um, and how binaries have constricted us and narrowed us in many ways and we have lived in a political system in the west that has been largely binary for a long time and um, even this expression of diversity we're seeing political pol politically it's uh, quite a wonderful thing isn't it it is a wonderful thing and i, I just hope that um, it actually brings about some change in parliament house itself um, you know Win winston churchill said that we 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 built we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us and you know, parliament is set up to be a binary and to be a uh, a, con a place of conflict and as Damien just said we're, we've got the um, we live in a complex system so how we introduce complexity into to the political discourse is going to be one of the challenges so I'm, I'm hoping that um, as more independents come in that, that they actually begin to have some influence on the shape of the building the way it gets used um, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could move that table in the middle so that we ended up being more in a collaborative circle because you know architecture and design do actually shape how we interact and so I'm hoping they'll at least have more roundtable conversations uh, outside of the parliament itself um, because we actually do need a more dialogical collaborative uh, space in which to find the way forward otherwise we'll just lapse back into this binary opposition you know and and the politicians have to learn how to play a different game too, I think. Because I, I think I think people will get, uh, well, we are all sick of just the opposition being the opposition. Mm. Um, and even the term just doesn't help. You know, they, they are not seen as part of the solution and they need to be part of the solution mm. because t together we have to bring the best ideas, the best dialogue. We need community input. Mm. Mm. Um, otherwise, it'll collapse again. Yeah, you raise a great point there, Peter, that, that 
people often don't see politics as an industry, but it is an industry, and it's probably one of the most, well, the most divisive industries on the planet because it's set up to other someone else, and yes. so all that nuance and complexity just isn't allowed in that space, which is mm. just so limiting. And and you look how that manifests now. I think about even the system that we've built. Yeah. You know, we pull down diversity like a big ecosystem of a forest, and we plant one crop. Yeah. Or the same with our in our democracy, we just narrow it down to two things. Whereas nature thrives on diversity, yeah, absolutely. and we just build these monocultures, and they clash with what we should be doing. So it's mm. little wonder that we're at the precipice now. Yeah. And what you're talking about, which I'm really excited about, is this idea of regenerative thinking, regenerative design, yeah. and starting from that place of of, of how do we should build the Parliament House yeah. for a better future. Mm. This linear system that we've had now is just not serving us. It's not who we are. No. Let's create spaces that are more conducive yeah. to these conversations, full of nature, all those things. That's the exciting world we can build out of this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was at a conference last weekend we're looking at a really interesting uh, concept called the Trioptican, which is incredibly uh, complex way of looking at complexity. But uh, as one of the people there said, yeah, imagine if you had to go and sit, before an ecosystem got bulldozed, imagine if you had to actually go to the ecosystem and see the ecosystem as one of the partners in the dialogue and actually make the decision while you're sitting there that you're actually going to totally destroy it. Yeah. Imagine the power of the influence of place and context rather than sitting in an office, air-conditioned office, artificial light, thinking that you're sort of somehow separate because we've got this binary of nature and humanity. Imagine if you had to immerse yourself in it and you're watching the ducks swim on the pond and, uh, and the fish and then say, okay, I'm really prepared not to look at any other alternative other than turning this into concrete. That's it. Absolutely. That's a fascinating the voice, idea. The voice, and, and it's about bringing, giving voice to, to other parts of the ecosystem. Which is a very First Nations principle, yeah, isn't it? Is it? A and, and, and what a gift mm. that we have this culture here yeah. that with at least 60,000 years of this you know, acute <coughs> observational science that mm. we could meld with our own Western yeah. thinking in this. What an opportunity for reconciliation. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. And yeah. New Zealand has given... Um, yeah. Uh, rights to mm -hmm. parts of the environment. The so river and yeah, lots of countries are doing it now. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is the way forward. So yeah. yeah. So Wait, if yeah. if you had a hard hat, Peter, and a sledgehammer, <laughs> and you're given free reign over the floor of Parliament, what would you design? Well, I'm, I'm, I might ask you the same thing, Damon. How would you guys mm. set it up? Well, it would be a circle, and people would, uh, when they came into the building, wouldn't have an allocated seat, so they'd have to go and sit in a different place every time. <laughs> And you'd have the, the speaker would be the person who held the collaborative space uh, while they explored whatever it was that they needed to deliberate on. Mm. So when you do that, you know, there's no drama in crossing the floor in adverted commas. So Bridget Arthur can hold to her principle of uh, wanting to vote on climate because she feels that that's what her constituency wants her to do. And so she's just sitting in a circle next to a green next to a teal um, and out of that sort of process you would end up with much richer policy mm. and there would be other people invited into the circle I mean that's partly what the voice to parliament is trying to do is actually allow the First Nations people into that space mm. but you could and again you you would be doing road trips and you know if you're talking about an environment bill and if you're talking about gas and oil you'd 
you'd be out there and you'd be doing your circle in that space. Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. That's such a great idea. <laughs> or anything you'd add into the, the floor of Parliament, Damon, if we're taking oh, notes it's down. Very, very well um, <laughs> articulated by Peter. I, yes, I think more nature. I think sort of all the research I look at says the benefits of even having, having some plants and greenery around and how that lowers the fight flight response, the, the studies they've done even in hospitals where even if there's a plant in the room, how much the healing can be accelerated. So mm. embedding that more so it's not separate, it's not removed. So we start embedding that into our metrics. It's not just this narrow financial one, but we're measuring soil health, all these things, and they're discussed in the parliament. But also I'd love to see in the future some kind of psychological profiling. I think it's crazy that we allow anyone with some kind of sociopathic tendency <laughs> to take the leadership of a country, yeah, especially yeah. with such power and yeah, where true. we're at right now. Why don't we profile and say, yeah. we want legitimate human beings in here. If, if right. you're going to show any kind of tyrannical traits, sorry, mm. this is not good for democracy. Yeah, yeah. What an interesting idea. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I've never especially heard when there's nukes and all sorts of weapons. Yes. Like, I mean, we saw, right. We, yes. right now, we're sort of being held to ransom by a yes. dictator, yes. a sociopath with a huge arsenal of weaponry. What yeah. a flawed system that is. Yeah. That's, mm. He could destroy it for everyone. <clears throat> Like, profile yeah. that guy. Yeah, Don't let him right. in the door. <laughs> it's, I, worth, it's worth <laughs> just saying, while we're sitting, we are sitting here at the, by the lake, uh, by the by the shore of a lovely lagoon, and as I talk about nature being involved, I just am looking out at the tea trees, and um, it's, it's actually a transforming place to be even making a podcast. Yes, mm. it is, actually. We should do more podcasts in places like this. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just, uh, on your idea, Damon, I'm just wondering how many Prime Ministers of the last 50 years wouldn't have got into the job? <laughs> how many politicians? Well, yeah, I think um, David Gillespie's got a book called um, something like Taming Toxic People, and he looks at the top professions that attract sociopathic behaviour. I think politicians is number one, is right up there, and CEOs as well. I think it's something like 25% of the world's wow. CEOs have those tendencies because wow. they yeah. attract that level of power and domination. You know? and that's why, but that's, see, that's where the, uh, the design of your building makes a difference. If, if, if we were doing it through circle work, those people would not turn up. Yeah. Yeah. And because that, they, would that, yeah. Get, they would get sick. They would get sick of the fact that there's all these other people who are allowed to have an opinion and that yeah. the whole thing is being shaped in a way that they can't control. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no even Scott, Not even Scott Morrison could take over the entire circle. Exactly. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's actually a practice, isn't it, in, in some yeah. of the hunter-gatherer tribes mm. where they would ostracise the sociopath. If, mm. if the young hunter came back with boasting about the big kill, they would either ridicule him, like demean him so that he came down to their level, or if he kept going, they'd banish him from the tribe because they knew that that would destabilise the group. Whereas we reward that person and make them the CEO or the Prime Minister or the President. Yeah. You know, so we've got it all the wrong way around in yeah. terms of what we incentivise. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And actually, it probably ties in really well with... Uh, I was reading an interview with you um, in preparation of this conversation, Damon, and you were talking about the, the ecological crisis and you said there won't be an individual saviour, there won't be one person. You know, the Elon Musk that just saves everyone, that narrative's gone, it's dead. We actually need a community to get us through this and we're being forced to come together. And this is one of our other very um, common themes is the, the myth of the individual, the problem of individualism, um, which perpetuates this system of let's just wait until the right saviour comes along. Moving to a much more communal way of living is so um, countercultural, I guess, in the, in the Western world. What are some actually practical ways that you've seen, as you've toured around the country, seen people starting to embrace this more? Yeah, I mean, it's happening everywhere. I think that's because the last three years we've really had um, the, the fragility of this global six-continent supply chain system exposed to us, mm. that, that it was built in a time of immense stability ecologically with unlimited finance and material use. And now we're reaching a really destabilising period. There's debt everywhere. 
uh, and those supply chains are very vulnerable. So how do we think about uh, resilience in our own communities, whether that's with food or energy, these things that are available to us now. So I think that's a, not a radical conversation as it was before. And that, as you both know, it, it's, um, it's, our, it's what we are as humans. I mean, that's how we got through. We, we had to collaborate, and yet we've built this system that rewards the opposite and incentivizes the opposite. And people are feeling that, and they're frustrated. And there's a beautiful quote by Thich Nhat Hanh who talks about that, is that the next Buddha will be community. Like, it won't yeah, be that yeah. individual person. And we're going to have to get to know our neighbours more than we realise in the decades ahead. We've seen it up here with our community here when the floods all hit. The self-organising human network that emerged was incredibly inspiring. It, yeah. it didn't come without its intricacies and delicacies of, of fragility of human ego and whatnot. But overall, to have no telecommunications, no food on the shelves, no petrol, and watch the human species organise, get things done, help each other out in a purely altruistic way. To me, it was a glimpse at the system we could design in the next 100 years or 200 mm. years, is that we've got the opposite system that says, you know, you can be a hyper-individual and we're going to cater for you mm. and you, you on your own is best. But no, we function like most things in nature. We're mm. deep, they're deeply collaborative. Mm. And we've just told a different story, largely since, since the scientific revolution and whatnot, that we are separate and extractive yep. and we dominate. Yep. And now the new science, the biology, the evolutionary biology, is telling us the opposite, that nature is incredibly collaborative mm. and that's mm. how it gets things done. And we're no different. We are nature. We, we rely mm. on every breath from a bit of phytoplankton yeah. or a, a tree. And we're covered in trillions mm. of bacteria and fungi that keeps us alive. That's like right. we are nature. That's so right. we should be feeling the pain of an ecosystem collapsing because it is us in some level. But also that mutual coordination and collaboration is intrinsic mm. in us as well. And, and it's, we're going to have to utilise that to get through what's ahead. Yeah, we are nature, that's right. There are, actually more, there are actually more bacterial cells on and within us than there are of our own cells. So Correct. we're actually more important as a habitat than we are as an Absolutely. organism. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so for just for some context, Damon, Peter, before he entered the priesthood, has a PhD in evolutionary microbiology. This is Perfect man to talk to about <laughs> this. His yeah. training. But you do often speak about the binary, how people speak about us and nature, Actually, Peter. Nature, right. yeah, it's just bizarre. And it's empirically false now. It's, 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 it's empirically proof. false. Yeah. And and it's a binary that is not only the, um, toxifying the the rest of nature, mm. but it's actually toxifying us. It's actually the lie. The lie of the binary is being laid bare by the fruits of that lie. Yeah, he here. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting when you speak about this sort of more communal um, way of living rather than the myth of the individual and this whole individualistic idea. And I think about. Um, you know, commonly I work in, in a school, do some, some work in a school, and how often will, there'll be kids go away on a camp together, a school camp, and, and they'll have some euphoric experience, and people will come back and they'll use all this different, you know, religious or psychological language to try to describe it. And I remember one person at the school saying, I'm not so sure I'd be confident enough to say they had an experience of God, but they definitely had an experience of each other. And I thought there, there is something in this, this desire we all have for the individual, give me the nice house, the five bedroom house on the canals or on the ocean front or whatever. Um, but actually what we're all hungry for is much more of a deeper sense of communal belonging. And um, I, I think it is in Brian McLaren's work, Peter, we've spoken about before that he charts using sort of the, the Jewish scripture as, as, a, as an idea that every time there was this step forward in what looked like civilization, there was a step backwards in loss of humanity. And that's a, just a really interesting idea that we've become separated from each other and are pursuing things that are killing us. And I suppose, well, it's fair to say this desire, this individual myth, 
is largely what's got us into this situation mm. because it is so unnatural. Is that yes. a fair? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and this, I think the story, the, the, the capitalist story, justifies that as saying, well, look how we're pulling people out of poverty, but they're measuring that purely by finance. Mm. If we could actually go back, maybe they were incredibly wealthy in community values, providing enough food, mm. all those things that we don't measure and value in this mm. system. So I often think they're just such misleading facts, and that is held to be the gospel by all these sort of mm. preachers of the system. It's mm. like, hang on, what if money isn't everything, guys? Mm. Like, what if people were far wealthier than, than we could ever imagine back then? And even now, you look at some of the GDP metrics of certain countries and how some of them, like Spain and others, are so far less than America, yet their quality of life metrics mm. and well-being <clears throat> just shoot through Americas. Yeah. So this idea, I think that story and that myth is coming to an end now that people have got multiple cars and multiple devices and they're going hang on i was told this was going to make me happy mm. but it's not mm. and sort of religion didn't is not is in favor as it once was now this material story is so there's room actually for something new to come mm. through mm. and i think it could be i hope that it's around regeneration or what could be more meaningful mm. than the regeneration of our home mm. like what an opportunity to bring people into that discussion and say even if we don't see the benefits of that in our lifetime, this is the legacy. It might be 300 years from now, but come on, let's do it. Let's plant yeah. those seeds of that thriving, regenerative, ecological future for the people that are to come. Like, that's the message I think we've got to sell. Yeah, I, I, we had it. We were lucky enough to have the author Matt Haig on the podcast a few yeah. years ago, the British author. And he, through his work, he introduced me to the idea of Dunbar's number. I'm not sure if you yes, come across it. 150 people. Yeah, yeah. That basically humans are hardwired for about 150 connections. That's right. And, um, and I was reading an article on Dunbar's number recently, this mm. sense that um, when we lived in communities of 150 people, this was all second nature to us because if I was throwing my waist out the window and it was harming, you know, Deborah's exactly. place down the bottom of the hill, Deborah would kick up a fuss. <laughs> Deborah would kick up a fuss. I know Deborah. Mm, I see right. Deborah every day. I like Deborah or yeah. don't like Deborah, but I see her every yeah, day. That's right. One way or another. Got to live with her anyway. I've got to yeah. live with her anyway. I probably change my habits. Yep. Whereas in this instance, we are so disconnected, and so we don't see. Mm. We don't see who suffers the brunt of this decision no. or that. But we isn't don't it interesting care. the last few years, the, the surge in people moving from cities to communities. And when mm. you talk to them, that's what they're asking. They're saying, yeah. I want my children to know the butcher and to know the local news yeah. agent. Like we're all craving that sense of community and knowing. And then certainly yeah. we've, we've moved out of a city for that reason. And to see, mm. you know, we trust our child to walk down the street and she's going to know six or seven people in, in, in 100 metres. Mm. That's wonderful. And there's something mm. really comforting about that as human beings. And I think it alludes to what you're saying. It's, yeah. Yeah. That's, how, that's a, an evolutionary thing in us around that feeling safe in that Dunbar number. Mm. One of the things we've talked about before is just the notion of, of how in our culture we've developed the idea that you can throw something away as if away is in a different place um, and increasingly we're learning that basically we're you know defecating in our own backyard you know and we think fouling our nest yeah, we, <laughs> we, we thought it was away but there is there there is nowhere away from us it so we can back onto it, our well, yes, right, it washes back and so you know, that idea that you could actually live over here and, and, and there's still that idea of you know, some of the super rich are buying up New Zealand in the idea that you know, they'll be safe. You know, that, um, but you know, the ecosystem collapse will, will collapse whether, wherever you are. So, so, so the idea of reclaiming presence rather than separateness I think is one of the challenges before us. Yeah. Well, Damien, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, but you obviously do. We are in your sort of your neck of the woods here. Um, you, you live in the Northern Rivers, which has been uh, had a pretty rough 2022. It's fair to say, um, and, and you mentioned already the experience of community that did come out of that. I'm ju I'm just interested as someone who sort of has had 
this first-hand up-close look at the ecological crisis this year now lives in a, a place that very much knows the fragility of the environment and, and knows the dangers it's up against. How have you seen that that's changed the community you live in um, over the course of this year? It's a little hard to gauge because I think it's still quite fresh. I mean, we, we still have thousands of people that are homeless up here. So it, it's almost mm. too soon still. I think there's a bit of trauma and shock that's still going on. And, and I'm speaking now to you only a few months after it's happened, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, but the people you do speak to, you know, there is the really positive stuff, which was that self-organising. But some of the more interesting insights I find is the... Um, the space we're going to have to prepare ourselves to, to be leaders in this space is actually requiring a, a letting go of our egos and that and which is again what we're really ill-equipped to do because of the system that's sort of rewarded that part of us that when things can get rough the ability to hold space for people as they are panicking or upset and if you can't how quickly things can fall apart and, and make it worse is that I feel like that's the deeper level of regenerative work that needs to happen around us as human beings mm. um, is how do we prepare for that and, and how do you hold a community space or someone that is really struggling with this just to love them through that and hold them through it um, that stuff's not getting talked about as much we talk about the top level in infrastructure and how do we prepare and set up these nodes that's great that's really important but I think as a society, we're still very adolescent in talking about that, that heart space, that deeper level of what it means to just be there through whatever for your fellow human beings. You know, We want to do it, and we saw beautiful examples of that. But th th there were moments where you think, oh, that's right. We're incredibly fragile as well. Yeah. And we do have this ego that wants to control, wants to take credit. Um, that's all things we, we, we really need to make sure we're working on as well. Or choosing the right people to be leaders in our community that are able to hold that space. And I suppose historically this has been partially the space of the religious traditions at their best, Peter, has been to help people journey through this stuff. I know you described with in a podcast with Sarah Bachelard last year that meditation groups should be called Egotists Anonymous. <laughs> you should come along and say, hi, I'm, I'm Dom and I have an ego. Um, but, but there is a sense in which, um, you know, the, the, the spiritual religious people of the world are the ones who have been trained, at least in their best iterations, in how to do this and how to journey together at the same time as we are moving away from these religious traditions. So how do you think we're collectively going to find the wisdom to handle this, uh, I suppose, the spiritual dimension of, of all of this? Well, I think, I think there's a deep connection in the human family that um, will enable us to do that. Um, uh, when I was at um, the retreat last week, we were the only people, uh, one of my colleagues and I were the only people from a religious tradition, and yet we were all talking about the power of... Uh, what you could call spiritual maturity in terms of how groups work. That when groups are working really well, you get uh, uh, a, a combination of emotional intelligence and, and IQ that actually, when the group starts to collaborate, you actually end up with this third element, which is called collaborative maturity or spiritual maturity. And I think there's actually um, a... Uh, space for us to be talking about and again it's because we've reduced ourselves to consumers that we don't actually take in into account this aspect of ourselves that every religious tradition at its best points to and that's our capacity to feel connected to one another to each other to uh, under to undergo some sort of uh, self-awareness so that we actually come to terms with our ego um, and so I think 
and, and one of the pro that's actually the project we came away with is how are we're going to be talking to people in non, non not for profits government sector and, s and stuff like that about how we develop collaborative communities and how we uh, touch into this third aspect of being which you could call spirituality but what are we going and, and we're going to have to find different terms when we're talking to different people so that it stops us being colonizers so we're not going in and saying you have to become this type of Christian or this type of Buddhist or but saying hey look the Buddhist tradition the Sufi tradition the Kabbalist tradition the mystical tradition in Christianity all have and First Nations spirituality the list just goes on and on and on have all pointed to this thing about being human mm. so let's work together to understand how that works in community without it, us, without you needing to sort of come into our tent and use our language because the, and I think that's the great thing about having these diverse traditions that are in dialogue is they've all got a, they've all got a word for it. Um, so there are multiple words for it. So it, it's something that's deeply human. Um, uh, so I think I think that it is something that the religious traditions can point to when they get out of their own way. I mean, you know, fear is grip, uh, gripping a lot of uh, religious traditions, so they're they're retracting too into sort of old ways of behaving. But there's I think there's a lot of hope to be found in the fact that say when we were at that retreat, people from no religious tradition recognised the need for that third element in the way they do their work. Mm. without signing up to come on a Sunday to the church but to uncover that bit that they know as they said it's the bit that we know is there but it doesn't get quantified because that capitalistic model of management is turning people into sort of simplistic creatures when in fact we're complex so it's about understanding the complexity and we need of meaning we, 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 we need we're meaning, meaning creatures yeah. and that's and we been need devoid. good stories yeah. and good narratives and mm. And that sense that we do, at our best, know that there's something rich about doing something together mm. that connects us. Mm. And when we have that, that working, we know that we've hit a sweet spot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. We know that we've hit a sweet spot, and that's when you know you're doing collaboration. And that's when you know you've got your spiritual quotient going at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I graduated from high school in 2010, and this is nearish the peak of probably the capitalist mindset of the promise that, that was being offered to us. And it's interesting looking at, at year 12 students today at the school I work at, you know, 12 years on, seeing as they prepare for graduation, the, the I'd say the overriding sense they feel about the world they're heading into is uh, exhaustion, cynicism, despair. Mm. Um, you know, e even if the, the ecological crisis was taken off the table, I think there is generally often this sense of what's the best I can hope for, what I'm aiming for in this life is is still i guess monetary wealth and and maybe a, a nice holiday for a couple of weeks every year and that's kind of that's kind of it like there's it's such a reductionist viewpoint of, of the world and i think it is breaking down beautifully and something that you do in your work damon is you, you have opened up for for proposals for pitches for quite practical ways people can look at the communal good can look at solutions to all of this and um, people can go to the website theregenerators.co to, to look at um, pitching ideas for that I'm just curious if there's any that you can share that have come through that that were particularly inspiring or particularly interesting that, that different individuals or communities have pitched in response to, to the film oh look it's um, we, we just round one um, 
yielded about 120 different submissions and, and right. um, yeah, about 30 of them are going to get some financing that'll be announced in the next couple of weeks and round two is about to open. And yeah, it's incredibly hopeful because I would say 85% of them were so brilliant in their, in their regenerative approach and that they were, you know, any solution had huge cascading benefits for the community, money staying in the community, but also for, you know, soil restoration or landscape restoration or marine restoration, indigenous-led ideas, decentralised energy, that people are really thinking in a different way and, and that really came through. Uh, and that they are, they are aware that we, we can't just keep relying on this top-down government approach to get things done and they've seen that it can work with the independence thing it's like right i can have someone that understands my community in in politics so i think it's really been a fillet for people to move forward um so yes there's ones there about bringing back kelp we've lost about 140,000 hectares mm. of kelp in australia um sadly in the last couple of decades and a lot of that is the warming waters and as the warm the waters warming come the urchins so ideas to sort of use those urchins and turn them into natural fertilizers and then that allows the kelps to grow back and, and even breeding kelps that can survive in the warmer waters um, things like you know uh, accommodation booking platforms we lose about 150 million a year from our communities to airbnb it goes overseas so how do you keep that money in the community so the community does not get robbed of their accommodation they actually get something back from that lots of indigenous led ideas around rights for rivers and protection protection and things like that so again this stuff that was probably a bit marginal and radical a few years ago is now front and center for a lot of communities again because of i think what we've all been through in the last few years that people know they need to shore up their own regions and they also know what's right for their place they're not mm. they're not being told from somewhere else about a solution that's right for them they know their story their community yeah. story the values of their community and they know we want this in our community so that's what's beautiful about this they're not you know they're not all the same for every region they're very much place-based mm. solutions mm. which i think is what regeneration is all about and what mm. the future is all about is this complex system that like nature does not every ecosystem's the same it depends on the factors that are around it the same for these ideas and initiatives we've got to prove through. we still need a global coordinated effort so we don't tip into nationalism but i think we, we also need to make sure that, that, that there's a local strength to our regions mm. Brilliant. That's beautiful. We're a, we're a creative bunch at our best, aren't we? Us humans. We're amazing, and that's what where <laughs> I have the hope that we're we're so ingenuitive, we're so creative, and especially mm. when our backs are against the wall, yeah. and that we're just operating in a system that doesn't bring out mm. that part of us. And when you're given the chance, oh my God, the things that we can do, and, and the kids are the same. I go and speak to schools all the time, and you're right. They sit there going, "Why should we have kids? What's the point mm. of this future?" And I say, "You're right," because this system isn't going to keep going that way. You know it intuitively and you're frustrated that you're being taught things that are 30 years old where you know you're going into a different world and mm -hmm. the world's going to change. Mm -hmm. When you start showing them the ideas that people are doing, showing them other people that care about their future, you just see them light up. And then the submissions they send to us about you know, the creativity of creating their own engineering projects, or, like they just, cool. it sets them free. So we've got to make sure that we're really careful with how we talk to our kids mm, about this mm. stuff and get them excited to say that you have really interesting careers of the future. They're going to be so meaningful if we're going to pull this off and you get to be a part of that. Mm. And let's go. We're going to help you, but let's go. Let's do it together. Not this stuff like it's all doom and like it's too hard. Just watch more Netflix. Like that's just not helping anyone. Mm. Yeah. I refer to that as Hitler's bunker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best party on the planet for two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And as yeah. I said, how do they had no hope. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mm. you've obviously done 2040. You've now done Regenerating Australia. What's what's next for you? Do you have a sense of what you're working on at the moment or what you're going to move into in the filmmaking space next? 
Yeah, there's a couple of ideas. I think I'm continuing this idea of regeneration. So I work with a guy named Paul Hawken in the States who did Project Drawdown and now he's done a book called Regeneration. And so him and I speak you know, a couple of times a week and thinking about a project there, like because we've got so many interesting regeneration projects happening around the world. I think to, for people to see that and to see how quickly nature can bounce back mm. and that regeneration is the default mode of nature and mm. just to show people how quickly we can actually bring bring our ecosystems back is something that I'm really excited about. And also we're working on a couple of things around the I guess the architectural flaws of the current system that sometimes we just try and fight climate change on its own mm. and to start getting people to see that th this is these are systemic issues and yeah. <coughs> perverse incentives and all these flaws that we don't talk about that are driving all of these things mm. to try and do that in a way that's very easy to relate to and people could go oh right of course like we've got to change that because it's leading to that so mm. um, that's a bit of a beast to try and sort of work out how to condense and and, mm. and make make appealing but that's a really fun challenge and, and I'm very, very lucky to be working with some really beautiful minds around the world that are thinking about this stuff now. Yeah, and maybe a new series of something like The Block Redesigning Parliament House. Maybe that could be a <laughs> down the track. Well, Peter's yeah. going to be the, the, the host of that show. <laughs> you yeah. could be the Scott Camp, Peter. <laughs> I can right. see that. Well, Damon, your work is amazing. The, the yes, Regenerators.co, that's yeah. the best place to go for all the uh, all the content? It is. It's a very early, it's just phase one at the moment, but that's we're just really about to scale that up in, in, in the months ahead. So, yeah, Regenerators.co. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. No yeah, thank Thanks you. for having me. Good on you. Thank you. And we will be back with another episode of the podcast. Thank you.